welcome to Terror Talk. Welcome to Terror Talk. <laughs> How are you today, Kathy? I'm good. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm good because I'm not working. I'm recording. You know, it's a good thing. I like it a lot. It's a better thing. It's a better thing. I'm having fun. We got stuff to talk about. I wanted to tell you really quick about something I learned about. I think this was a Pepper article. I love Pepper's articles. Yeah, one of our, one of our listeners, her name is Pepper, and she sends me the f- most fabulous articles. So this one is called Mom Raises Awareness After Son is Diagnosed with Uncombable Hair Syndrome. So this is one of those things that's first hilarious and then second sad. A Georgia mom is on a mission to spread joy and raise awareness after her one-year-old son was diagnosed with uncombable hair syndrome. So that's kind of funny right out of the gate, and especially with the photo, because the photo is like uncombable hair. It looks like he's got a static issue like the hair is poor kid. you know like is it it's if you had short blonde hair if you were a toehead and you just couldn't brush your hair or if you had a magnet that was pulling your hair up in all different directions i so think it's she like, sent this to both so that was it on the discord yeah, yeah that's yeah. where i get him yeah i saw yeah i saw the pictures of his hair okay good yeah the boy's mother caitlin samples told good morning america that a stranger messaged her last summer on instagram after seeing a photo of her youngest son and asked if he had been diagnosed with this already at first you see the word syndrome and you're like oh my gosh she was thinking oh lord is he in pain and this that or the other so she just of course went on a google deep dive because that's what we do these days and hang on wait a second this makes sense right so uncombable hair syndrome is a rare hair disorder and a genetic condition that usually affects children between the ages of three and Three year, three months and three years, but you could have like they do it all the way up till twelve. As I guess is the oldest kid that's been diagnosed mm-hmm. with it. There's only about a hundred cases have been reported in medical studies, so that's very rare. People, she says, people must. Oh no, it's this doctor, <laughs> Dr. Carol Chen from the pediatric dermatologist at UCLA Health said, people just must be like, oh my god, your kid's hair is so unruly or hair that's difficult to tame, but they might not have sought a medical professional for this because it's so rare and they've never heard about it. I'm looking at some other research on it right now. The pictures are so sad, like, oh my gosh. And I'm assuming if you try to comb the hair, they just scream bloody murder is what I'm amazed. It's like frizzed out. Yeah, that's why I said it looks like static. It does. Like like when a little kid touches. Exactly. Mm -hmm. A specialist can diagnose the uncombable hair syndrome through a genetic test and an example of the hair clipping. So they just look at it in a microscope and, and they know so when you look under that microscope, you can see that instead of having hairs that are cylinder shape, the shaft of the hair is actually more of a triangular shape. And within the triangle, there are these little grooves that go up and down the long axis of the hair shaft. And that's what makes it uncombable. Because, of course, our hair is combable because it's a c- c- circle. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I'm not trying to make light of this, but there is one image of a little girl and she's smiling. And next to her is a picture of Boris Johnson, the prime oh, minister, yeah. because hair, his hair does well, that. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's why I'm saying this is both hilarious when you first look at it. You're like, what's wrong with that kid? And then you read about it. You're like, oh, that's kind of sad. I don't sad. think Boris Johnson ever grew out of his uncontrollable yeah, or uncombable hair. So that is just a guy with unruly hair. <laughs> totally. Like he always, he's always just waking up. <laughs> yeah. So I guess to diagnose the condition, at least 50% of the hairs would have to be like abnormal. 
So wow, this is I guess nuts. some people, what I'm thinking, there's a family photo and three out of four of the people have average hair. And then there's the little boy that oh has this God. hair and it's just sad. So I guess the genes were found, you know, you have can have a recessive gene, but it means that both the mom and the dad have to have one of these genes and pass it to the child. It's like so rare. And then, then there's kids that have it. So, this is nuts. It's really sad. It gets mat. The hair gets matted really and easily. It's really fragile. It gets tangled. 99% of them are toeheads. Yeah. They have to, ra- the, this one mom is saying that she rarely washes his hair because it doesn't really get greasy because it doesn't lay down. I assume it does not. And then it says, Oh God, we get a lot of comments about him looking like a dandelion. And that's actually a very accurate description. That is a very accurate description of appearance and how it feels. She says his hair is extremely soft, like a little baby chick. You know, like when you feel a dandelion, People will ask to touch it, which is fine, of course, but as long as people ask. And then there's like videos. She's on Instagram. Um, I believe the Instagram is uncombable underscore locks. Okay. So if you want to go check him out, so there's like videos of him and, and all of this. So anyway, I wanted to share that. Okay. On to other things. Go ahead. Um, before I talk about a quick little historical piece that I found that I'm really interested in seeing now, um, I was in Vegas a couple weeks ago and I finally saw O, Cirque du Soleil O. Why am I bringing it on the show? Well, because it's, it's pretty ominous, the show. Um, and, you know, we talk about all forms of entertainment on here. If people have, don't know what it is or they've never seen a Cirque du Soleil show before, um, it has been in Vegas for a long, 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 long time. And I know people who have seen it you know, seven to 10 times. It's that good. The show is actually titled, Oh, there's a couple of different reasons why it was titled that the more obvious is that it's the French word for water Mm. spelled E A U. But some people actually believe it's, it's a double in tundra um, that it stands for Oz as well. And if you really look at the the themes in this show, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about it in a moment and why I thought it was so incredible, is first of all, with Cirque du Soleil, the themes are always incredibly ambiguous. It kind of leaves it up to your imagination to create the meaning out of the show. Whimsical. It's very whimsical. But it is also unique, and you cannot see this specific Cirque du Soleil. Like, I've seen Mystera. I've seen some of the other ones that oftentimes they'll put in circus tents. Like, here in Los Angeles, we'll get ones that um, are put underneath tents in like Santa Monica and it's like literally going to a circus but these are people who a lot of them are um, Russian Czechoslovakian uh, I think some are from China some of the most incredible gymnasts dancers um, contortionists trapeze artists that put on these the most amazing shows but oh is actually done over a stage that has been built with water Um, so, and you don't need the most expensive seats to see this show, but what I love so much about it, first of all, um, it's my second favorite soundtrack of Allegria is my favorite, but this soundtrack of, Oh, is so incredibly beautiful, but these people are jumping off of trapeze head first onto the stage that goes anywhere as deep as like probably 15 feet 
to times where the water actually gets leveled and they can walk across it. So the, the stage is always changing. And it's, if you remember, Shannon, what I think is so beautiful about this show, not only the feeling that sits with you, it sat with me for about a day after I saw it, is that the water is a vehicle and it doesn't distract from the show. It's used just enough to be like, a, uh, it's a vehicle. I guess I explained that. I was so blown away by the show and I've seen Cirque du Soleil, but there was something about the whole setup, the music, the story. If anybody gets out there and they have not seen the show, it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. I've seen it. It's amazing. And and the other difference is that it's not a traveling show. It's in Vegas. It stays in Vegas. They perform all the time. It's been there for many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. I probably saw it 10 years ago. Yeah. So it's been there for a very long time. So they're very well established. And yeah, it's very unique. And it's just awe-inspiring. It's awe-inspiring. I, I, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to share a personal story. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> uh, when I was in college, I worked for Cirque du Soleil because one of the things that happens that used to mostly happen with Cirque du Soleil is it travels all over the place, mm -hmm. right? So they come into your town, they set up the tent and it's there for six weeks and then they move it to mm -hmm. the next place. Now, nowadays they have all these residencies where they'll be there for months and months and months and it, the paradigm has shifted. But then it was like a traveling circus show without the animals, basically. Mm -hmm. And when I was in college, they came to San Diego. I went to college in San Diego my, for my undergrad. And they came to San Diego, and there was an ad in the paper or whatever. You could go and work for them. So I worked the Cirque du Soleil at the time. I don't remember the name of it right now, mm -hmm. for six weeks. And one of the things is that what one of the things that was fun for us is that uh, I met people. I met local people, and I did it with a friend, I think. I think we both did it, and I was in the theater at the time. Like, I was in the theater program, and I acted in theater and stuff. And so going and being behind the scenes and working in a different theater than what I was used to at school was a lot of fun. But the cool thing was that it was half of us locals working the shows, and the other half were the carnies that were with them all the time. And so we ended up like meeting a bunch of people and they all, I remember they came to my house one time for a party. So we had all these like circus carnies so in cool. the house yeah. and everything. And it's just this really fun memory of stand. And I, plus then I also got to stand in the audience as an, I, cause I was an usher. So I got to stand in the audience and watch the show every single that, night oh for my six God. weeks. So yeah. that was really cool. So, that, that's a reason alone to work for them. Yeah. When you said Cirque du Soleil, I was like, oh, that's such a it's nice just, memory. And I know <laughs> that like, especially out here and being so close to Vegas, we're so privileged to be able to see many. mister has been there for a long time. Ovo's coming back. O's been there for a while. But just to give you, I'll, I'll close it up with this. That it's, it's described as a whimsical and visually stunning show that transports audiences into a fantastical world of wonderment and awe with the use of stunning acrobatics surrounded by air, fire, and most prominently water. I have never seen anything like this before between the music, the story, the costumes, and the acrobatics. It'll blow you away. That's Do yourself great. a favor. <laughs> awesome. That's fun. I wanted to mention too, I know I mentioned last week that Ty West was coming out with this movie X, but also he shot a secret horror prequel to the A24 slasher movie X with Mia Goth, 
and it reveals that there are plans for a trilogy, basically. So Ty West was so eager. I'm reading from IndieWire, and this was another article posted on our, our Discord because I often take your guys' suggestions of what to talk about and what to tell everybody who listens. Ty West was so eager to get back to directing movies that a few weeks before shooting his new one, he wrote another one while in quarantine and shot it in secret. And that was Pearl, the prequel to X, which A24 releases this week. So last week I talked about how X had come out and it's a 70s set slasher movie that marks the genre filmmaker's first feature in seven years, actually. Premiered at South by Southwest over the weekend, which is a few weeks ago. Now with a surprise teaser for Pearl that announced the next chapter in a very unexpected new franchise. So he's actually... Sneaking in there, a trilogy, I guess, the whole franchise with this one. So this one might be a good one to check out. He cool. said, he said, I'm trying to build a world out of all this like people do these days. You can't make a slasher movie without a bunch of sequels. So he's trying to do that out of the gate so they're not trash, I imagine. So that's good. Yeah. Anyway. Awesome. That. Yeah. Very, very cool. Uh, I would like to share a really sort of weird but cool thing that I found, and maybe you've heard of this before, Shannon. I have not. There's something called the Bone Church in Prague. Have you ever heard of this? Mm-mm. Okay. <clears throat> so I'm just going to read you a quick synopsis on this. So the Bone Church is a bit like entering a well-designed house of horrors. It takes a few seconds to realize that almost everything around you is made of human skeletons. The wall decorations... A large chalice, a coat of arms, an enormous chandelier, even the angelic cherubs are decorated with gaping skulls. From the moment you enter the church, death stares at you in the face. If you go onto this website, whatboundriestravel.com, you'll see all the pictures as well. That's what this article's from. Mm. So during the Middle Ages, the Kutna Ora Silver Mines, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, received worldwide recognition as the area experienced a silver rush, becoming the second richest town in the Czech lands after Prague. Mm. The first monks settled there in 1142, um, and the uh, Sedlec Osuri? became part of the first Cisterian Abbey in Bohemia. Probably butchering half these names. Um, as we, we do our best. Yeah, as part of their life, um, all of the monastery possessions must be produced by the monks themselves. So what they think happened was that the bones of the, the, the bones of the bone church were said to have originally come from the 14th century when the Black Death claimed thousands of lives in the area. Uh, the Hussite Wars in the early 15th century added many more dead to the creepy collection, but no one knows for sure exactly where all of these bones came from because the skeletal decorations in the Bone Church Prague were mentioned for their first time in the 16th century. So this is crazy. You walk in and essentially every artifact, everything that is inside of this church is made up of humans from the Black Death. Wow. It's gorgeous though. I was going like, to say I bet it's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. The chandelier is just like ribs and and tibias. Oh, and then wow. like it it sits out almost like an octopus, right? And then on top of it are skulls around the whole chandelier. Huh. 
So there's a chandelier of bones. Mm-hmm. You enter, when you enter, there's like a cross of bones. I mean, it's absolutely, it almost looks like it isn't real. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That but sounds, it's gorgeous. That does sound otherworldly, <laughs> yeah. basically. So check it out, Pyramid of Bones. There's so many cool, I would go just to see this. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> 40,000 souls. That's how we roll. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> Perfect. Bone Church. Boone. The Boone Church. Sounds like a good band. On that note. The next oh. thing we'd like to do is a little thing we like to call. Yep. She blew out the mic. It goes red. It just goes red. And I love it. Number one. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I'd like to preface. Oh, God. One of these five questions is from one of our listeners. One of our listeners that we know well. Okay. Because they are on our Discord. Okay. Here's a little fun game we're playing now, folks. If you're on our Discord, you get to contribute a question to Horror Facts with Kath. You can also do it if you are a patron That's and true. not on the Discord. Because our patrons don't have to be on the Discord. So you could send it through Patreon. and I You will, could. I will get it and I will give it to Kathy. So... What I need you to do at the when we come back at the end is tell me which question is not mine and who you believe it is. Okay. Okay. Number one, what percentage of children um, report hearing voices? Got it. Number two, Kane Hodder, who did stunt work, for this film, this particular film, also scored an uncredited role in the film as Frankenstein's ghost. What cult classic are we referring to? Okay. Number three. Soon after filming was wrapped, Roddy McDowell and director Tom Holland, not to be mistaken with (laughs) Spider-Man, were scheduled to meet with live entertainment chairman Jose Menendez to discuss making a third film. But plans died, no pun intended, when Menendez was infamously murdered by his son. Mm. This resulted in the second part, part two of the series, losing its planned countrywide distribution and sending it straight to video. What film franchise are we talking about? Okay. Number four. Which classic children's movie has been joked about bordering on existential horror? (laughs) All of them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Go ahead. And in the last question, in Stephen King's It, how many years does Pennywise sleep? (laughs) Okay. So from the novel, which is... The same as the new movie, but different from the made. Got it. TV. Yeah. So from the novel, how many years does mm-hmm. he sleep? Okay. <laughs> Fun facts. Thank you very much for that. We will take a break. And today on the show, we are going to start our discussion, which is going to be a two-part discussion. So today on the show, we're going to talk about the first film in the Final Destination franchise. So Final Destination and Final Destination 2 today. And then we will do another episode coming up here when we will talk about 3, 4, and 5. There's only five movies in that, which I, I was, know, which I was surprised at. But I can also see how, like, yeah. 
Like that's really only, all it takes. I mean, <laughs> there's only so many times you can find a new way for them to die. I mean, you could just repeat this particular formula. If people like it, you just really basically repeat the same movie over and over again with different context. Correct. Yes. So we'll talk about that <laughs> after after a very very quick musical interlude, and then also later on the show we will talk about our horror watches for the week, and we'll round it out with the answers that I won't have. Horror Facts with Kath. We'll see you in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Jarring. I'm just writing something down and it caught me off guard. <laughs> Do you remember when these came out? Uh, no, not really. I remember when the first one came out. So that was in 2000. Right. I had just moved back to LA. Mm. And I think I saw it in the theater. Oh, really? Not that that's like it super would, relevant, but... No, no. I mean, it. W we always talk about our personal experiences yeah. with movies. I think everybody has personal experiences with movies, and it's part of what like informs whether you like it or not, right? Um, yeah. I, I would... In 2000, I would not have seen this in the theater, but I can imagine how it would be a fun popcorn movie. It was. Mm -hmm. And unique for its, for its time, right? Unique for its time? I think so. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let me just say what we're talking about. <laughs> Final Destination, 2000, the first of five, horror mystery thriller, 97 minutes long. <sighs> Alex Browning is embarking on a trip to Paris. Alex experiences a premonition. He sees the plane explode moments after leaving the ground. Alex insists that everyone get off the plane and seven people, including Alex, are forced to disembark because he starts a tussle. There's like a his high school or college rival is on the plane, too, and it starts a tussle and then they all get kicked off. These seven people all watch. They all watch as the plane actually explodes in a fireball after taking off. He and the other survivors have briefly cheated death but will not be able to evade their fate for very long. One by one, these fugitives from fate fall victim to the Grim Reaper. This is directed by James Wong, starring Devon Sawa, Ali Larder, mm. Kerr Smith, Kristen Cloak, Danny Robeck, Chad Donala, et cetera, et cetera. The CW. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically, I, at the time, you're absolutely right. I don't know if you remember this, because I know the horror facts with Kath don't always stick. 
Never. But this was a horror facts with Kath a while ago. Okay. Um, What was the fact? Tell us. That the film began as a spec script written by Reddick for an episode of the X-Files. Yeah. So it's funny because the critics consensus on Rotten Tomatoes, which of course is at 35% at this point, is not good. Despite a panel of X-Files alums at the helm and a promising premise, flighty performances and poor execution keep Final Destination from ever taking off. So critics don't really like it, but the audience scores are way up around 68 70% 70% which is pretty good on Rotten Tomatoes so it received a Saturn award for best horror film that year and I best just, performance by Devin Sawa that's funny yeah I mean I find that funny I do too however let's just say so I don't remember I must have seen this movie but as I've stated before I would go to Blockbuster and watch 10 movies over a weekend in my free time to mm-hmm. disassociate from my career in Hollywood yeah <laughs> to like check out of the work week and so I watched a lot of movies I don't remember so that's why everybody gets to tease me like I may have seen that I'm not sure but I don't re- I didn't so I sat down to watch it thinking I might remember but I really didn't remember too much of this movie there's a couple of deaths that I remember like okay yeah I do feel like I've seen this before and I enjoyed it popcorn movie you know it's fun Etc. Like I would say to anyone who maybe isn't, maybe is new to horror and wants something to watch, mm-hmm. this might be a good one for that mm-hmm. because it's not super awful. I mean, of course, there's some gore and all of yeah. that, and there's some terrifying ideas. But the reason why we picked it to talk about the whole series and two episodes are two reasons. One is it talks about some psychological themes, right? Mm-hmm. Some existentialist, uh, can we cheat death, et cetera, that we're going to get into real quick here. And also because I must say, several listeners have requested we talk about it. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Not not in a bad way. It's just, mm-hmm. to me, it's such a forgotten franchise. For and sure. I think that... Um, from a formula standpoint, it's the same movie with the different vehicle every movie. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen all five, so okay. I'm really looking forward yeah. to the next episode that we do because mm-hmm. I did remember the first one. I didn't remember the second one. I probably never saw it, and I know I haven't seen the other three. I have not seen four or five. So there we go. It's gonna. So that was another reason why I thought it might be fun is because yeah. I haven't seen the movies, right. and everyone's recommend not everyone, a handful of people of you guys said. Hey, and I don't get a lot of ideas from listeners that like everybody says we should do. No, that's really interesting. And I think it's going back to what we're about to talk about, which is just a lot of the underlying themes. I mean, who I think it's safe to say that most people have recognized that they have an expiration date. And I know for certain over the last couple of years with COVID and the way the world has been, there's been a lot of death. There's been a lot of illness. There's been a lot of freak accidents. At least this is what I've experienced in my practice. And there's no way of avoiding the thought of death because it's going to happen to all of us. And like you and I were saying before we came on air today is that the way that death is presented in this film is almost like a living entity, uh, you know, no pun intended, but it really it does come alive. Yeah, as like as horror films do, right? They mm-hmm. take it and they they sort of see it outside in the corner of their eye. They kind of see the curtains move. They see like a little amorphous something move across the room. So they do the at least James Wong in this movie made it a thing, like mm-hmm. made it like it existed. Yeah, and something like it was, tangible. Yeah, and like uh, the movies Christine and different kinds of movies from the past where you know, evil 
was evil or death or whatever is is an entity. Right. And they certainly portray death as bad. So there's that. Not everybody sees death as bad. Right. Some people see death as a natural that's, that's progression right. of life. Mm-hmm. Right. So they death is you're supposed to be scared of Something it. Something to avoid. Yes. It's uh, death anxiety, basically. In Freudian terms, you know, the death anxiety that we all carry. And we mm-hmm. can either indulge that or not, honestly. So there's a lot of that. One of the things I notice is, of course, in this movie. So if you haven't seen these movies, you know, there's this idea of trying to outrun death, trying to control death. You know, they've cheat they they think they've cheated death and so that that fate is a fate accompli, right? It's fate is fixed. Mm-hmm. And so if you cheat death, this is the basic premise in these movies or the psychological concept or the emotional concept, is that if you cheat death, then death is coming for you. Mm-hmm. And they just make that into a horror movie. Death right. is coming for these people. And so what happens is they cheat they hypothetically quote unquote cheat death and then death comes for them and you get to see like death be the slasher it's basically a slasher yeah with death coming to kill them all in the order and then there's all this fakakta about oh it's about the order and we could save it and blah, blah, blah. yeah um i think one of the the things that i like about the way that they um approach the formula or whatever is, you know, it, it always, each movie starts with a very large tragedy. Um, and one person has a premonition, right? Which that person is saying, listen, this is about to happen. We need to avoid this. We need to not do this. And then inevitably it happens. And then, you know, they're all like Shannon said, they're trying to cheat it, but it starts with this really big tragedy, a big car accident or a big plane crash or a roller coaster or whatever. But then it moves into these like fairly innocuous things that all of a sudden become really scary. And so one of the things I appreciate that about that is if somebody does have anxiety around death or they've been experiencing a lot of loss in their life, the smallest things all of a sudden do become a threat that could kill me. That could kill me. That could kill me. When I work with, um, I work with some teenagers whose parents see the world as this incredibly dangerous place. And they've imposed so much anxiety on the kids that the kids don't even have it anymore because they're like, mom, going outside is not, I'm not going to get raped walking out on my front yard. Right. And I know that I'm kind of digressing from the film, but I, but I, but the reason I bring this up, I guess, is because anything can become a threat. And in this film in every single one of these films, as the movie moves on, these little things that would otherwise be something we just do every day become the object that kills them. So anything can become scary. Anything can become a threat, especially if we have a high death anxiety. Yeah, I think one of the, so one of the tropes in these movies is that, you know, you've, you've cheated death's design. In other words, the death has a design and if it's your time, it's your time. So it feeds into a lot of our culture's beliefs and I'm sure other cultures, the idea that if it's your time, you're going. And that if you change that, or if something happens to change that, it could just be you trip on the sidewalk, stop to tie your shoe and don't walk into traffic. It doesn't have to be that you like intentionally tried to cheat death. Of course, these movies are taking it to this dramatic endpoint to make their point to tell that story. But all the deaths are accidental. 
what ends up happening is all the deaths are accidental. So if they would have all, they're tragic deaths. So if they would have all died in the airplane in this first movie, in the second movie, it's a horrible highway accident that a female character, AJ Cook, has a premonition about. If they were all to have died in the tragic accident, tragic, sudden, accidental accident, right? Like death. Wrong. They're all, so all of the deaths after that are always accidental. So it's all these weird things that have to, all these little steps that have to go together to create the death. You know, this thing drops and rolls over there and then someone trips on that, that whole thing. And they're all wrong place, wrong time deaths. And so if you have a fear around losing control or helplessness, which our culture does, mm -hmm. like everybody, to varying degrees, if you practice mindfulness or meditation, not as much, but most of our culture, that's in the water, helplessness, this movie plays into those. So I can see why a lot of people would be frightened in these movies. Like they mm -hmm. might see them as tongue in cheek because of the era that they were made, the mm -hmm. early, you know, the early 2000s, et cetera, because a lot of movies were very tongue in cheek and they, cheek and they have a very distinctive feel, mm -hmm. they're kind of corny. But yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's this inherent fear that we all have. And what I noticed in both movies is that they have one character it's very formulaic. They have one character that tries to say, I control my life. Yeah. So in the first movie, it was the guy who was the rival, basically. And at one point or another, he has a flip out and says, I control my life, you know, screaming to the rafters, I control my life. You don't control my life. And then tries to kill them on the train tracks. Mm -hmm. And in the second movie, it's an African-American gentleman who's like, this is all bullshit. And you guys are full of shit. And I don't believe any of you. And then when he does believe, when he has that paradigm shift of, oh, I do believe you because something bad happens. And he goes, oh, shit, they're right. Then he goes, I'm going to take the, I'm going to do this. I can. And then he tries, he's like, puts the gun to his head. He's going to mm -hmm. take his own life. And in each movie there's this character that has mm -hmm. that right and i think yeah. that's meant to represent a portion of you all sure. a portion of the population that would say oh oh no you don't right death i i can i control my own life mm -hmm. and i think that is indicative of a lot of things it's like people who are going to quit their job before they get fired or you know like defending against that ultimate helplessness which death represents we see people do that as they'll intentionally do things that are very risky in their lives to, to test that or cheat that and then we have the other end of the continuum which is what i was talking about before where people will go out of their way to an unhealthy level to avoid life because everything feels threatening yes right there so another idea would be that they bring up is does death try to write the cheat you know so it's like okay if you accidentally don't get on a plane that then crashes and then like does death have another script already does death have have this design on you right and now i have to say i don't believe that as a person, mm -hmm. I don't believe that that is the way life is. I don't believe life is rigged that way. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that death is necessarily a negative thing. Uh, obviously, it's a very sad thing and a thing that a thing that an idea and a concept and something we've all experienced in our in our people we care about. 
And, but it is also the natural and normal accumulation of having lived. And then it's random. And that it's, and that all death is random, right? These movies mm-hmm. really plug that. And so I, I get these are movies. I'm just saying that it's like. Yeah, but I think that people, the, the, Bigger, I think, uh, overarching theme here, though, is is like you were saying, the death anxiety, what people will try to do to not die, and whether they overcompensate by saying, no one's taking that but me, or I'm going to avoid everything that's scary because everything becomes a risk, or somewhere in the middle where it's something you every once in a while think about and do things to remain safe, you know. Um, well, it's the irrational fears that we get into, yeah. right? And that's what we see in the totally. in the therapy room or with clients or people you're assessing is that you it's an assessment tool. Like, are these fears irrational? Are you afraid to leave? You know, this can be the seed of all anxiety. Are you afraid to leave the house? Are you afraid to have mm-hmm. relationships? Are you afraid to go to school? Are you afraid to go to work? You know, all the things. Are you afraid to uh, interact with your family? Whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And it's all kind of, it's not about death necessarily, but it's about failure, feeling bad, being rejected, all the things. And and a lot of, you know, existential therapists will often ask that question. They'll say, okay, so you're afraid of the grocery store. Tell me about that. And then the person will say, well, I mean, when I leave my house, I have panic attacks. So I get it. You know, like that's what happens to you. Those are symptoms you're having. But like, let's say, let's imagine if you would, you get in the car. Are you afraid of the car? No, I'm not afraid of the car. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're afraid to get to the grocery store. So what would happen if you went to the grocery store? Well, I would panic. Okay. So what if you went to the grocery store and you panicked? Well, I, it's really uncomfortable. I don't want to panic. Okay. So if you went to the grocery store and you panicked, what would happen? Well, people would see me and I would be embarrassed and da, 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 and I would feel, okay, so you would be embarrassed. Then what? And eventually what ends up happening is you can ask enough of those questions to lead the person to ultimately saying, I would die. Mm-hmm. And so those fears are a fear of death, death anxiety. It's not a fear of the grocery store. It's actually a fear of dying. Yeah. And, and this is why when we just address symptoms, <laughs> exactly, it doesn't really do much, right? Obviously, you got to go rip it out by the root, right? And you're talking about the root. And it will, a lot of time, I'm not saying that's an easy conversation for people to acknowledge. Sometimes it takes years mm-hmm. to get to the point where they're like, and the, it would kill me. I have a... Uh, so what I, I guess I would let me just say one mm-hmm. more thing. I think this is a movie that you could recommend to those kinds of clients at a certain part in treatment where you would say, or you could watch it together with them and stop and pause and talk about it because that is what's happening in this movie is these kids are like, I can cheat death. There's a narcissism in that too, right? Like mm-hmm. I, and then they do end up saying I cheated death. And then you get to the next movie, which is the second one. And not so much. <laughs> they mm-hmm. didn't really cheat death. So, and then and, the cycle begins again. Which is why they're all at that age too, yeah. that egocentricity. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt yeah. you. No, Go that's ahead. okay. I was going to just uh, share a, um, a cheating death story. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, there's no possible way I could know that if it would have killed me, but this was years ago. I was living, I was still living in Michigan and I was actually working for Blockbuster Video at this time. And I was living at home and I was, I think I was supposed to work at like four o'clock. And right as I was leaving the house, phone rang. This is when we just really had like, didn't really use cell phones. 
landline rang and it was my manager at work. And he said, Cass, don't worry about coming in at four. It's slow. Just come in at five. I said, all right, thanks, Greg. No problem. I'll see you five. I drove to work and it took me an extra 30, 40 minutes to get there. I lived seven minutes from Blockbuster. At four o'clock or somewhere in that time that I would have been driving, this guy came out of nowhere on the road that I would have been literally like the quarter mile that I would have been on. And he, I don't know if he was on drugs or whatever, but he drove on the wrong side of the road and, and crashed into and killed a handful of people going that way, which is where exactly where I would have been. Yeah. Head on collisions. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just one of those things where it was like, I guess it wasn't my time. You yeah. Know? And people will say that, right. As if we do have a fixed time of death. And that, yeah. that's kind of what this movie plays with. It plays with the ideas of fixed time of death. Is, is there some grand designer that is scheduling you for death, right? Lots of our movies do that. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, oh, this was my, you know, and they do it with comedy and they do it with horror and they do it, you know, where it's like, it's fixed and you can't change it and it's coming for you. So you either give into it or you fight it. And that's what these movies are doing, right? It's really, it's interesting. I'm also aware of the time frame that this is. Like this came out in 2000 Mm -hmm. and in 2001 we had the World Trade Center. And there were a lot, and then, you know, Final Destination 2 came out in 2003, right? Mm -hmm. After, would have been shooting like right after. And they chose car accident, et cetera. Now, as I've said, I haven't seen the other ones, but it's just really interesting. I And the tone didn't really change with the second one. So I know a lot of people in my personal life and I know a lot of people in the world have stories about how they were supposed to be in the World Trade Center mm-hmm. those days. So that's a very powerful yeah. example about how I imagine some of those people that have those stories are living with the idea that they cheated death. Not that they necessarily believe that. I'm not saying that. It's just like, that would be a natural thought to think like, it wasn't my time or, you know, I uh, feel powerful because, but it would also instill an anxiety about like, okay, the trauma of that is if I go to this meeting or if I go to that meeting or what if my, you know, like sometimes I'll have that fleeting thought when a plane is late yeah, the, I, I think there's all the other flip side of that would be survivor's guilt too. You know, the people that did survive or didn't get on the plane. I had a friend of mine that I think was supposed to be on one of the planes and um, ended up like missing, either missing his flight or rescheduling his flight or I can't remember. And I would imagine that for some people too, there's a level of, depending on how closely related it is, you know, if they knew people in the trade center or whatever, that they're, um, there could be some survivor's guilt also. Absolutely. I I can absolutely see that. I know that there are the families of people who died in the towers that feel like, I wish it was me. Yeah. Why, you know, why was it me? Why not wasn't me? it me? Mm-hmm. And that is a very common part of grieving. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, 9-11 was my grandmother's birthday wow. while she was alive. And, you know, it was my grandmother at the time lived on that side of the country. So of Mm. course I had that fleeting thought of like, Mm -hmm. what if I had gone out for her birthday and been on the, you know, you have those, those are wild thoughts that you just entertain when that kind of trauma happens. And although it did not affect me directly because I didn't have a family member there, 
it, it affected all of us culturally. It was For sure. very, it was a moment in time where it did feel like it affected everyone on, with multiple levels, you know? Yeah. So, but it's one of those events that I can imagine because it's tragic. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time it feels accidental because you don't know what was behind it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that, that it was an accidental death. It, right. it most certainly was not, but. And the people who got out of the tower yeah. that ended up making it out of the tower, right? Right. Very, it's it's that sort of, mm -hmm. but that's the level that these movies, totally. the tone of them, these movies are not necessarily that tone. Right. They're much lighter than that. So I don't want to give anybody the impression who hasn't seen them that it's that dark. It's actually not. It's, it's horror. It's, yeah. sla it's, but yeah. it's slasher horror. Totally. It's not hereditary horror. No, no, no. It's slasher horror yeah. where it's light and it's kind of fun and there's some gore and it's teenagers. That was all the rage at the turn of the century was these teen horrors. Did you like Final Destination 2? I didn't care for it. Okay. Yeah. Do you understand why? Or um, I just, I don't know. I just felt like it, following on the heels of number one, I didn't find the, um, I, I shared with you earlier that I liked the third one better. I know we're not talking about it this week, um, and I'll talk about it when we do, why I did. I just wasn't as pulled in by the characters and the cast and as much as I mm -hmm. was in one and three. Yeah. This one, I haven't seen three yet, but this one is lighter. It's lighter, kind of campier. They leaned into the, you know, the, the era between 2000 and 2010 has a lot of that kind of, it's got a very specific voice. If you've ever looked at stuff for that 10 year period, yeah. the aughts, the aughts had a very interesting horror voice, not, not all encompassing of course, but there was a lot of light kind of, campier things kind of cheesy kind of campy kind of corny and there that's reflected in this for sure but yeah. this one has kimberly has a premonition of a horrible highway accident and killing multiple people including her friends and stuff i found that first sequence was very drawn out very detailed there was mm -hmm. a lot of tension i liked the way it was shot it mm -hmm. went on for far too long mm -hmm. you know when you're when you're building tension you're you're getting shots of smaller things and larger things and every you know burp and fart of like everything that's happening you 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 get a shot of and so it just builds all this tension because you've seen final destination one so you know you're waiting for the tragic yeah. accident and yeah. then when it happened i thought it was shot really well i thought that, that scene was i'll give you that's that what i'm saying that yeah. first 10 15 minutes i thought it was set up really well yeah i'm just talking about the good stuff mm -hmm. and then um yeah the characters were campier and and all of that but it kind of had the same it had the same formula so if you like the first one you're going to get something out of the second one and they they kind of upped the mythology a little bit as well mm -hmm. i'll just say that they kind of like took it a, another couple of extra steps in the world building of yeah. what death was doing they kind mm -hmm. of added some stuff so i would say that if you're looking at it as a franchise again haven't seen three yet but it did add some stuff i'll be interested to see if they break all those rules in three four and five like some franchises do mm -hmm. or if they don't but yeah anyway yeah i'm enjoying it so Cool. We will watch three, four, and five, and we will get to that, and we hope you enjoyed this discussion. We're going to be right back after a small bit of music uh, to talk about our, our watches, of which we have several. Thank you so much for listening. We will be right back.
Oh, sorry. Hello. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Yeah, we're going to talk about some horror movies and books. I believe, let's start with your book. I believe you oh. have a book because I'm reading your books first. So I'll give you a real quick synopsis on why I'm, why I'm reading this book and it will hopefully... Uh, open up some more topics on the show that I bring in in our like Monday minicast and stuff. I work relatively close, meaning collegially with Patrick Prince, who is our head uh, chief threat assessment officer at, at University of Southern California. He and I both have a background in risk assessment. He's done a lot more than I have. He's uh, was LAPD for over 25 years. He's worked with guys like Reed Malloy, Gavin DeBecker. Um, this guy's been called in for some of like the really, really, really like gnarly, notorious cases of like school shootings and things like that. He's such a wealth of knowledge, such a supporter of the mental health um, community and honestly believes that uh, it's psychologists and mental health clinicians should be the ones that are doing risk assessment, not police. <laughs> and he and I have had various conversations about that. Um, he is uh, good colleagues with a, a man by the name of Gavin DeBecker, who many of you may have heard of if you are in the forensic world. And this is a guy who is one of the best, if not the most like known for risk assessment in the United States. And he has a book called The Gift of Fear, which has been recommended to me. And so many people have read it. I'm actually quite behind. Um, but it is uh, survival signals that protect us from violence. So he writes a, a really, really thorough risk assessment book that also helps people, even just from like a non-clinical or non-forensic place, truly understand like how human beings are in in our surroundings and how like we're the only creatures that move towards fear instead of away from it. Um, so I'm going to start reading it and bringing elements of it to the show and discussing what Gavin talks about in here. I've heard from a number of clinicians, forensic and non-forensic, that this is a really, really great guide, especially for people who are survivors of trauma as well. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, I know we're doing at least uh, at least one, I'm sure, if not more, but I know we're doing at least one for the, the Monday minicast, which is our extra content on Patreon. But we we also talked a little bit about it last week and she's bringing it up this week. So yeah, yeah, right on. So I'm looking forward to that. I like, the, I like that psych shit. That's I do too, man. I'm reading a couple of psych books right now too, but I'm not going to bring them to the show just yet. But I did start reading psych books again. It takes a minute, you know, sometimes you just don't want to when it's your profession. That's, that's, this is one of the, I've, I'm reading two right now, but it took me a while. Like I have to find the ones that are, I still, feel like it's still entertaining if it's too textbooky if it's too psyche if that's a word it's too much with everything that we do there still has to be some personal investment in it cool i watched the eyes of tammy faye this is not a horror oh, movie I started that but i haven't finished but it, it could be i I'm know just teasing. it's a couple hours long it's a biography drama the eyes of tammy faye so i kind of grew up knowing who tammy faye was tammy faye baker for those of you who don't know this is a movie, obviously. It's a biography, but it's not It's not a documentary. It's that Jessica Chastain plays Tammy Faye Baker, and she is phenomenal. She's in this. almost unrecognizable. I didn't recognize her. 
Yeah. I didn't because I'm not like uh, I'm not a super duper fan of hers. Yeah. I, I like her and mm-hmm. everything she does, but like I don't I don't yeah. like rigidly follow her. So it, it worked for me. And yeah, you, I just I didn't even get that. I had to literally look up who it was afterwards. That's how unfamiliar with like mm. her I am. But it, <sighs> I think it I think it did its subject really right. So. My experience with Tammy Faye is watching on television Tammy Faye Baker mm-hmm. and Ted Baker. And also I had, I had at the time, they're deceased now, but I had at the time several family members who were very evangelical in their, in their Christian beliefs. So this was a part of like what I knew about life, like, right? Like not just Tammy Faye, but Oral Roberts and all of the people of that time, Pat Robertson, et cetera. And all those people are actually portrayed in this movie which is oh Robertson's in it too. Pat Robertson, yeah. Yeah. So, it was really so I can't say that I am going into this blind or cold in other words. So, part of what I enjoyed about this is because it is a time capsule. Mm-hmm. Second part is I do have family members, people I loved and cared about that were very evangelical in the Christian faith and I was exposed to that a lot as a as a young person. And so that was always interest, always interested, interesting to me. And then knowing about Tammy Faye and sort of knowing that story already made it interesting. But I didn't know anything about the personal story. I knew who they were. I knew about the scandal, of course. We all knew about that, even me as a kid. You know, my a family member worked for what we called Channel 40, and that was where all the preachers were at the time. There mm-hmm. was a channel, and all the preachers were on that channel. And this is before streaming and the internet and all that. So <laughs> there was just the channel that you watched on television that was the God channel is what I always called it. And so they were on there. And she was, of course, known for her makeup and they yes. address that in the film. So it's 2021, so it's pretty new, and it's gotten really good reviews. It's 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 from her eyes. So the eyes of Tammy Faye is a great title because, of course, anybody who knew, who knew Tammy Faye or watched her, it was all about her eye makeup. But also, it's from her POV. This whole this mm-hmm. whole movie, and I just found it very riveting. I mean, the performances. I, from what Great. I've, like I said, I started it. I haven't finished it yet. And um, like I was saying, she's unrecognizable, but uh, I liked what I've seen. I want to finish it. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. I mean, it's an intimate look mm-hmm. and it's like the, the rise and fall. It was definitely yeah. a rise and fall. Jim Baker. Sorry, not Ted Baker. I think I said Ted yeah, Baker. Yeah, you did. Say Ted. <laughs> Jim Baker. He was incidental. It was all about Tammy Faye and that eye makeup. Yeah. But no, he was the one that ended up causing the scandal that eventually took them all down and they go through all that. I thought it was very interesting the way he was portrayed. She was phenomenal. So I would recommend it to anyone. All righty. And I think, uh, was she not nominated? Probably. Yeah, I think she was. Okay. I watched a documentary called Haunters, The Art of the Scare. This was, wow. Okay, so this is based on an actual haunted house i believe it's on the east coast the art of the scare is a mind-blowing documentary about how haunted houses for halloween have spawned a controversial subculture of full contact terror simulations go inside the most notorious extreme haunt in the world and ask yourself how far is too far this 
was a deeply, I thought, a deeply psychological documentary more than it really was about the horror, although it's terrifying. The name of the haunted house is the McCamey Manor. And this is something that over years they've built. Uh, the guy almost lost his wife to it because he's addicted to the work and so much that become his outlet for everything. But I guess I, I wanted to open up just a really brief discussion on how, you know, we can look at this one of two ways. We can look at this as incredibly, you know, like a torture porn type of atmosphere where people are, uh, it borderlines uh, on like inappropriate and people could actually get physically hurt. Um, people are shoved in free, large freezers, coffins, um, they're waterboarded, they're, they're signing up for contact. I don't think they know what level it's going to get to. And they interview some of the regulars that go through it. And some of the people who, um, despite begging the, the scare actors to stop that they're so method in what they do that these people come out traumatized. And so the argument really is, is this a healthy outlet, like the purge for people to get certain feelings out, angers out, whatever, or is this borderlining abuse and, and violence? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts about stuff like this? Well, I, I've seen, I don't know if I've seen that one, but there was definitely a documentary I saw that was all about these like dudes in this neighborhood who made haunted houses and the whole neighborhood knew that it was abusive in that way. Mm -hmm. That even the same one, you know, even if you, begged they wouldn't let you out type of thing yeah so as to your question about whether or not it's a healthy outlet for fear i think that's really based on the individual because it wouldn't be a healthy outlet for me no but it might be a healthy outlet for someone's brain for someone who has brain chemistry that wants risky risky things wants to be on the edge of death basically Wants well, to be traumatized. And I don't necessarily think that's a healthy endeavor. No. And, and I also, and I appreciate that. I also wonder too, is it healthy for the scare actors? Because we're going to be talking about the Stanford prison experiment mm-hmm. in a few weeks. Yep. And we know what happens when people embody certain amounts of power. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the documentary ad- addresses, they, uh, they had some scare actors who were minors who were starting to then get inappropriate with some of the, the women and they really just became these predators mm-hmm. on and off the character yeah. just in the environment. They had to let a couple of them go. Um, so, you know, what is it breeding as far as like, you know, these actors that are given permission to torture? Yeah. That was the word that was coming to my mind was that there's a false sense that the person in front of you that you're about to victimize has given you permission because they signed that release and they want to be terrified. And, and, and some people without well-developed brains like teenagers, you know, they haven't advanced into maturity in any way. Uh, Not only would, predators who are mature do that but certainly teenagers who might be really not making very good choices and be very impulsive and if you're attracted to doing that kind of work it might not actually be a healthy impulse right Mm -hmm. so all those things being true and then you give them the illusion that you've given them permission to do whatever they want to scare you Mm -hmm. you're gonna have that boundary crossing like that seems like a no-brainer to me that 
people are individuals and that some people are not going to understand where the line of social norms is. I mean, half the kids we assess are kids that might not be psychopaths. Most of them aren't because it's rare. Right. There are kids that don't read social cues. There are kids that are black and white thought. They're black and white thought. They have rigid beliefs, you know, Mm -hmm. they're going, you're going to tell them to do X, Y, Z, and they're going to do X, Y, Z and then say, what do you mean? Well, especially if the message is this is entertainment. Exactly. Yeah. It's just a false. It's a, yeah. It's like, and it's, you and I love to be scared. Oh, shit. But yeah. this is, this is just a whole other level. It was really interesting, too, to watch the, uh, the marriage between two of, I did see this. Yeah. That yeah. sounds really familiar. Yeah. And how that ensues. And like, there's a brief on screen marital argument. Yeah. Um, I did see that. And he's like, I'll be damned if I'm going to give up Halloween for a kid. Cause <laughs> she's totally like, saw that, yeah. yeah. If she's like, if I, if we have kids, we're going to go trick or treating like normal people. And he's like, fuck this. And like, he's so in it, which is, you know, obviously we want people to have their hobbies, but to the point where like his relationships are being ruined over it. So anyway, it's Addiction. interesting if people are like haunted houses and like this time of year and the art in it and everything. It's a really interesting documentary. Yeah, cool. I watched a movie called The Weekend Away, 2022, mystery thriller, 90 minutes long. There's been a lot of interesting movies lately. <laughs> When her best friend vanishes during a girl's trip in Croatia, a woman races to figure out what happened. However, each clue yields another unsettling deception. It's funny. One of the critics that I just read said something about a large glass of white wine on a Friday night. Mm. Like that that was this movie to them. Mm-hmm. It's pretty fast paced. It's a decent, it's a decent watch some unexpected things happen. I'm trying to figure out like how I can say I wouldn't want to watch it again necessarily. It's the subgenre of girls on vacation and people vanish, right? Yeah. Going on vacation. Speaking of playing into fears, going on a vacation to a foreign place and being kidnapped. Okay. And then the mystery ensues, right? Cause it is a mystery thriller. So, and then you slowly figure out like, where did she go? Who did it? It's a whodunit, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit unique in the sense that when I first read the description, I was like, oh, this is just going to be one of those ones where the chick is kidnapped and raped and tortured and all that. You know, you just, that's where your mind goes for a sure. lot of these movies that it was going to be fairly standard. But it wasn't that. Mm-hmm. It was it was definitely a mystery thriller where you were trying to figure out who did it. But for perspective, I gave it two stars, which, and for me, two stars, like on Letterboxd, is it was a solid watch. I wasn't mad that I watched it. I, I enjoyed the ride a little bit. I thought the performances were pretty good, but I, I wouldn't sit down to watch it again. Okay. So do you think it was in the same family of like Teristas and that kind of stuff? Like Way less brutal. Okay. Not, not a horror film. Okay. Definitely a thriller. Thriller. Yep. Like a Taken? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Just only to get with the a energy of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Only with a female. Okay. Hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one that I watched was a movie uh, called "You Should Have Left" that came out in 2020. It's a Blumhouse, directed by David Kep. Hmm. Thought that that would be a good thing. I t- t- typically like him. Uh, I would say that it was to me. It was a stir of echoes light. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So I I liked it better than some of the reviews. Yeah, um, I mean, I like Kevin. I've seen this movie. So. Yeah. Yep. So uh, You Should Have Left is a 2020 American psychological horror film. 
and directed by David Kep, based on uh, the 2017 book. Essentially, it, okay, so it's a successful couple take their daughter on a trip to the Welsh countryside for a holiday. A series of sinister events take place, which indicate that all is not what it seems. So Amanda Seafred is uh, plays the uh, the wife. They have a 30-year gap in age. She's a Hollywood actress. He's suspecting this whole time that she is not being loyal, but he also has a lot of existential crises going on in his uh, mind because of his past and he's been accused of murdering his first wife. So there's a lot of drama going on between the two of them and they share a daughter. So they end up taking a break from reality and they go out to this, it's a beautiful area, but the house is like really eerie and creepy. It's, it's like overly modern and empty with all these random hallways and doors and which ends up really being a metaphor for his mind what I will say is that there was a lot of potential for this movie. Their relationship wasn't super believable, even though I love both of them, but it ends up really being a movie about your shadow Mm -hmm. and how you can't get away from it. And uh, the house is really a mental prison. Well, and if you look at, and maybe this is where you're getting it from, but you know, psychoanalytic literature, when we have dreams about houses, it's usually a represent, you know, a lot of times that'll be interpreted. If you go to a dream interpreter, not mm-hmm. everybody interprets dreams in therapy. Some of us don't want to interpret things, mm-hmm. but analysts will interpret houses as a house, your psyche, that mm. the house is your psyche. Mm-hmm. If you're having dreams about houses and then you can explore that in, in your analysis around like what that means. So whenever I see horror movies with houses, I'm yeah. always, <laughs> I'm always yeah. thinking that kind of thing. So I think you're right. I did see this movie last year or in 2020 when it came out. And um, I thought, I remember thinking what I remember is that I remember thinking Amanda's performance was really great. She was I'd never seen her in this. She's usually playing a very innocent role. She was very much in the lead in this, even yes. though it's Kevin Bacon, and yes. she very much held her own with him. I agree. Um, so I did not hate it. I did not hate no. it. I think there were some parts where it kind of dipped. It, it, like Shannon says, it could have used an edit. Um, <laughs> it was slow to start. That's what I remember, too, is it was really slow. But I remember wanting to finish it. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, yep, so yep. there you go. I watched a movie called A House on the Bayou. This is on Hulu right now. I'm not sure if it's still by the time this airs, but I assume it is. A 2021 horror mystery thriller, about 90 minutes long. In an effort to reconnect and mend their relationship, Jessica and John Chambers, who is Angela Serafan and Paul Schneider, seek an idyllic getaway with their daughter, Anna, who's played by Leah McHugh to a remote mansion in rural Louisiana, a house on the bayou. When suspiciously friendly neighbors show up for dinner, and I'm sorry, suspicious doesn't even cover it. Like I would not have left. I would have ran. <laughs> suspiciously friendly neighbors show, and I didn't find them all that friendly either. Oh my God. Uh, show up for dinner uninvited. The weekend takes a sinister turn as the fragile family bond is tested and dark secrets come to light. So again, this is one of those ones where you're thinking, oh, okay, it's a home invasion. I'm not a, I'm not a fan of those either necessarily, mostly because it gets scare the fuck out of me mm-hmm. because that's a very real fear that I think most people have, right? So when things are based in things that could really happen, kind of like what we were talking about with Final Destination, it's like, oh, that series of accidental things could happen to me. Let me, sure. let me perseverate on my fear of that, right? So that's what the, so I thought that's what it was going to be. 
No, not necessarily. So this this actor named Jacob Laughlin plays this character named Isaac, and <laughs> they get to it pretty fast. So if you really don't want any to know anything about this movie, you know, pause, speed up, or whatever. But I want to tell you that because I know this is a popular trope, this is a Blumhouse as well. Okay. But because I know I people like do everything, people watch movies because they want to watch movies about devil the devil or the devil having a hand in things and i think that's one reason why people actually watch will watch a movie like oh i love things that deal with the devil or satan or whatever and this is one of those ones so yes they invade the home but no is it a simple home invasion no you there's a, there's a twister turn twister two there uh, yes, you're going like, oh my God, run away. You know, you're doing that in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And yes, there is a psychopath. This this kid plays this character, Isaac, who definitely reads for the first half of the movie like a psychopath. But from the very beginning, there's a room in the house they can't get into. No key works on it. So there's a there's a supernatural element right from the beginning and that's how you kind of know it's not your standard home invasion okay. but from the minute these fucking people show up at the door <laughs> you're like oh yeah those are bad people yeah yeah in fact when they meet them in the grocery store down the road which is where the they find them or whatever you're like yeah no <laughs> no 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 and the little girl talks to isaac and you're like fucking walk away girl what yeah. are you doing but it gets pretty fast to the point. They get over to the house, then you're in the house. And then honestly, a lot of things happen that aren't don't have anything to do with what you thought maybe was going to happen because it's definitely supernatural and it's definitely the devil and themes of themes of punishment. Okay. Kind of like with Final Destination where it's like if you do something bad, the devil will come for you. And he won't stop coming until he gets you. So it's a similar idea. Okay. Yeah. All right. I enjoyed it. I mean, for me, it was like like a three where I would watch it again if if somebody wanted to watch it type of thing. I'm not going to go seek it out and sure. watch it every Halloween or something. But but I would but I would certainly watch it again. And what's the name of it again? A House on the Bayou. House on the Bayou on okay. Hulu. Excellent. Hulu. Yeah. I think I've seen it on there actually. Yeah, if uh, yep, I flipped by it a bunch of times before I clicked play. It was one of my morning watches. It was one know. of those where you're like, should I? No, I'll go back to it later. It was yeah, yeah. and then and then when I watch horror m movies in the morning, it's usually like a press play. I just try to press play mm -hmm. on whatever, especially if it's a newer one, because I definitely want to bring like newer stuff to the show, because that's what everybody's watching, kind of, you know. Yeah. So the next thing on our agenda. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was like totally Boom. in sync. I mean, I don't think it sounded very good, but. So you have to, when I get to the question that you believe is someone else's Can't question. Can't I just say at the end? No? Okay. Oh, no, I mean, yeah, you can. Okay. You can do that. All right. Yeah, you might have to hear them all again. All right. Number one, what percentage of children report hearing voices? Uh, I'm going to guess. Okay. Like, mm, like 10 to 15%? 20%. Okay. Lowball it a bit. Yeah. Number two, Kane Hodder, a.k.a. Shannon's boyfriend, <laughs> did stunt work for this film. He also scored an uncredited role in the film as Frankenstein's ghost. What movie? 
classic cult. Like a Frankenstein thing, right? Not necessarily, no. He just happened to play that part in this. Because mm. I was going to say, like, the Anne Frankenstein movie. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it might be a, a fun watch on Discord one night. Have yeah. you ever seen Waxwork? Probably not. Okay. I mean, it, I know it's a cult favorite. It's a fun one. And these guys end up at, uh, they go to uh, like a wax museum on Halloween. And then they walk in to realize like the 80s. Yes. <laughs> Number three. Soon after filming was wrapped, Roddy McDowell and director Tom Holland were scheduled to meet with live entertainment chairman Jose Menendez to discuss making a third film. But the plans died when Menendez was inf- infamously murdered by his sons. This resulted in part two losing its countrywide distribution. Right. I, I don't know the answer to this one. So this would be Fright Night 2. Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> your favorite movie. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite franchises for sure. I even like the remake, Fright Night. Number four, which classic children's movie has been joked about bordering on existential horror? I'm going to give you a hint if you don't guess it. I, yeah, I don't know. It's the most terrifying ride in fantasy land. <laughs> well, gosh, there's a couple I could choose from for that one. But of course, Sleeping this, Beauty. Is- this one has not been redone because, you know, some oh, of them have been redone. Yeah, yeah, too yeah. Scary. Oh, man. Gosh. Because a couple of them I find sort of terrifying. Yeah. I mean, the Sleeping Beauty is always been kind of terrifying but it's been redone so um i like wild toad mr Mr. toad's wild ride but i don't think it's terrifying necessarily um i don't know peter pan no that's not scary alice in wonderland maybe that's a good guess but it's pinocchio oh sure yeah and then number five i just started listing off all the rides (laughs) (laughs) pinocchio still it's just weird it is weird Um, because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense and it's sad it is sad in Stephen King's It, how many years does Pennywise sleep? 27. You got it. <laughs> All right, so... King likes the number 27. It's in a bunch of things. So what's your guess? Number two. The Kane Hodder one? hmm That was actually my question. Okay. Let so, me, do I get another guess? Sure. I mean, you know, because it's just for Ge- fun. Guess one more. Um... I think number four. The cult classic? Yeah, the Disney one. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, that was mine also. Okay, then I don't know. It was actually number three, and it was Snake's question. Oh, there the you fright, go. The Fright Night one. Nah, of course. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Snake. Thanks, Snake. Snake is a listener of ours, and he also hosts the Mystery Double Theater night. And this month in, in our Discord, if you guys want to join up, uh, this month we did a Pam Greer double feature. Because it's Women's History Month. Awesome. Yeah. So he did uh, Coffee and Foxy Brown. Amazing. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> I love her. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We really appreciate you. And we will see you next week where we talk about the rest of the Final Destination franchise. We also have more Ted Bundy coming up. You know, we've been revisiting the Ted Bundy and, and adding some information to that. And we're going to talk about the Stanford experiment in two or three weeks. So. Please stick around. We very much appreciate you and have a great weekend. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.